0: Book Two, Chapter One of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Birds of a Feather, Chapter One of an Educational Character. The school at which young Charlie Hexam had first learned from a book, the streets being for pupils of his degree, the great preparatory establishment in which very much that is never unlearned is learned without and before book, was a miserable loft in an unsavoury yard. Its atmosphere was oppressive and disagreeable. It was crowded, noisy, and confusing. Half the pupils dropped asleep, or fell into a state of waking stupefaction. The other half kept them in either condition by maintaining a monotonous droning noise, as if they were performing, out of time and tune, on a ruder sort of bagpipe. The teachers, animated solely by good intentions, had no idea of execution, and a lamentable jumble was the upshot of their kind endeavours. It was a school for all ages, and for both sexes. The latter were kept apart, and the former were partitioned off into square assortments. But all the place was pervaded by a grimly ludicrous pretense that every pupil was childish and innocent. This pretense, much favoured by the lady visitors, led to the ghastliest absurdities. Young women, old in the vices of the commonest and worst life, were expected to profess themselves enthralled by the good child's book, The Adventures of Little Margery, who resided in the village cottage by the mill, severely reproved and morally squashed the miller, when she was five and he was fifty, divided her porridge with singing-birds, Denied herself a new nankeen bonnet on the ground that the turnips did not wear nankeen bonnets, neither did the sheep who ate them, who plaited straw and delivered the dreariest orations to all comers at all sorts of unseasonable times, so unwieldy young dredgers and hulking mudlarks were referred to the experiences of Thomas Tuppence, who, having resolved not to rob under circumstances of uncommon atrocity, his particular friend and benefactor of eighteen pence, presently came into supernatural possession of three-and-sixpence, and and lived a shining light ever afterwards. Note that the benefactor came to no good. Several swaggering sinners had written their own biographies in the same strain, it always appearing from the lessons of those very boastful persons, that you were to do good, not because it was good, but because you were to make a good thing of it. Contrarywise, the adult pupils were taught to read, if they could learn, out of the New Testament, and by dint of stumbling over the syllables, and keeping their bewildered eyes on the particular syllables coming round to their turn, were as absolutely ignorant of the sublime history, as if they had never seen or heard of it. An exceedingly and confoundingly perplexing jumble of a school, in fact, where black spirits and grey, red spirits and white, jumbled, 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 "'jumbled every night, and particularly every Sunday night, for then an inclined plane of unfortunate infants would be handed over to the prosiest and worst of all the teachers, with good intentions, whom nobody older would endure, who, taking his stand on the floor before them as chief executioner, would be attended by a conventional volunteer boy as executioner's assistant.' when and where it first became the conventional system that a weary or inattentive infant in a class must have its face smoothed downward with a hot hand, or when and where the conventional volunteer boy first beheld such system in operation, and became inflamed with a sacred zeal to administer it, matters not. It was the function of the chief executioner to hold forth, and it was the function of the acolyte to dart at sleeping infants, yawning infants, restless infants, whimpering infants, and smooth their wretched faces, sometimes with one hand, as if he were anointing them for a whisker, sometimes with both hands applied after the fashion of blinkers. And so the jumble would be in action in this department for a mortal hour, the exponent drawling on to my dearer childerner, let us say, for example, about the beautiful coming to the sepulchre, and repeating the word sepulchre, commonly used among infants, five hundred times, and never once hinting what it meant. The conventional boy smoothing away right and left, as an infallible commentary, the whole hotbed of flushed and exhausted infants exchanging measles, rashes, whooping cough, fever, and stomach disorders, as if they were assembled in high market for the purpose. Even in this temple of good intentions, an exceptionally sharp boy, exceptionally determined to learn, could learn something, and having learnt it, could impart it much better than the teachers, as being more knowing than they, and not at the disadvantage in which they stood towards the shrewder pupils. In this way, it had come about that Charlie Hexham had risen in the jumble, taught in the jumble, and been received from the jumble into a better school. "'So you want to go and see your sister, Hexham?' "'If you please, Mr. Headstone.' "'I have half a mind to go with you. "'Where does your sister live?' "'Why, she's not settled yet, Mr. Headstone. "'I'd rather you didn't see her till she is settled, "'if it was all a same to you.' "'Look here, Hexam, "'Mr. Bradley Headstone, highly certificated, "'stipendiary schoolmaster, drew his right forefinger "'through one of the buttonholes of the boy's coat, "'and looked at it attentively. "'I hope your sister may be good company for you.' "'Why, do you doubt it, Mr. Headstone?' "'I did not say I doubted it.' Uh, "'No, sir, you didn't say so.' Bradley Headstone looked at his finger again, took it out of the buttonhole, and looked at it closer, bit the side of it, and looked at it again. "'You see, Hexon, you will be one of us. In good time you are sure to pass a creditable examination, and become one of us. Then the question is—' The boy waited so long for the question, while the schoolmaster looked at a new side of his finger, and bit it, and looked at it again, that at length the boy repeated, "'The question is, sir, whether you had not better leave well alone.'
1: "'Is it well to leave my sister alone, Mr. Headstone?'
0: "'I do not say so, because I do not know. I put it to you.' I ask you to think of it. I want you to consider. You know how well you are doing here. After all, she got me here,' said the boy, with a struggle, perceiving the necessity of it, acquiesced the schoolmaster, and making up her mind fully to the separation. "'Yes.' The boy, with the return of that former reluctance, or struggle, or whatever it was, seemed to debate with himself. At length he said, raising his eyes to the master's face, "'I wish you'd come with me and see her, Mr. Headstone, though she is not settled. I wish you'd come with me and uh, take her in the rough, and judge her for yourself.' "'You are sure you would not like,' asked the schoolmaster, "'to prepare her?' "'My—my sister Lizzie," said the boy proudly, "'wants no
1: preparing, Mr. Headstone. "'What she is, she is, and shows herself to
0: be. "'There's no pretending about my sister.' His confidence in her sat more easily upon him than the indecision with which he had twice contended. It was his better nature to be true to her, if it were his worse nature to be wholly selfish, and as yet the better nature had the stronger hold.' "'Well, I can spare the evening,' said the schoolmaster. "'I am ready to walk with you.' "'Thank you, Mr. Headstone, and I am ready to go.' Bradley Headstone, in his decent black coat and waistcoat, and decent white shirt, and decent formal black tie, and decent pantaloons of pepper and salt, with his decent silver watch in his pocket, and its decent hair-guard round his neck, looked a thoroughly decent young man of 6 and twenty. He was never seen in any other dress, and yet there was a certain stiffness in his manner of wearing this, as if there were a want of adaptation between him and it, recalling some mechanics in their holiday clothes. He had acquired mechanically a great store of teachers' knowledge. He could do mental arithmetic mechanically, sing at sight mechanically, blow various wind instruments mechanically, even play the great church organ mechanically. From his early childhood up, his mind had been a place of mechanical stowage. The arrangement of his wholesale warehouse, so that it might be always ready to meet the demands of retail dealers, history here, geography there, astronomy to the right, political economy to the left, natural history, the physical sciences, figures, music, the lower mathematics, and what not, all in their several places. This care had imparted to his countenance a look of care, while the habit of questioning and being questioned had given him a suspicious manner, or a manner that would be better described as one of lying in wait. There was a kind of settled trouble in the face. It was the face belonging to a naturally slow or inattentive intellect, that had toiled hard to get what it had won, and that had to hold it now that it was gotten. He always seemed to be uneasy, lest anything should be missing from his mental warehouse, and taking stock to assure himself. Suppression of so much to make room for so much, had given him a constrained manner, over and above. Yet there was enough of what was animal, and of what was fiery, though smouldering, still visible in him, to suggest that if young Bradley Headstone, when a pauper lad, had chanced to be told off for the sea, he would not have been the last man in a ship's crew. Regarding that origin of his, he was proud, moody, and sullen, desiring it to be forgotten. "'and few people knew of it. "'In some visits to the Jumble, "'his attention had been attracted to this boy Hexham, "'an undeniable boy for a pupil-teacher, "'an undeniable boy to do credit to the master "'who should bring him on. "'Combined with this consideration, "'there may have been some thought of the pauper lad "'now never to be mentioned. "'Be that how it might, "'he had with pains gradually worked the boy "'into his own school, "'and procured him some offices to discharge there.' "'which were repaid with food and lodging. "'Such were the circumstances that had brought together "'Bradley Headstone and young Charlie Hexham that autumn evening. "'Autumn, because full half a year had come and gone "'since the bird of prey lay dead upon the river shore. "'The schools, for they were twofold, as the sexes, "'were down in that district of the flat country tending to the Thames, "'where Kent and Surrey meet.' and where the railways still bestride the market-gardens that will soon die under them. The schools were newly built, and there were so many like them all over the country, that one might have thought the whole were but one restless edifice, with the locomotive gift of Aladdin's palace. They were in a neighbourhood which looked like a toy neighbourhood, taken in blocks out of a box by a child of particularly incoherent mind, and set up anyhow. Here, one side of a new street— there, a large solitary public-house, facing nowhere, here, another unfinished street, already in ruins, there, a church, here, an immense new warehouse, there, a dilapidated old country villa, then, a medley of black ditch, sparkling cucumber-frame, rank field, richly cultivated kitchen-garden, brick viaduct, arch-spanned canal, and disorder of frowsiness and fog—as if the child had given the table a kick, and gone to sleep but even among school buildings school teachers and school pupils all according to pattern and all engendered in the light of the latest gospel according to monotony the old pattern into which so many fortunes have been shaped for good and evil comes out it came out in miss peacher the schoolmistress watering her flowers as mr bradley headstone walked forth it came out in miss peecher the schoolmistress watering the flowers in the little dusty bit of garden attached to her small official residence with little windows like the eyes in needles and little doors like the covers of school-books small shining neat methodical and buxom was miss peecher cherry-cheeked and tuneful of voice a little pincushion a little housewife a little book a little work-box a little set of tables and weights and measures and a little woman all in one. She could write a little essay on any subject, exactly a slate long, beginning at the left-hand top of one side, and ending at the right-hand bottom of the other, and the essay should be strictly according to rule. If Mr. Bradley Headstone had addressed a written proposal of marriage to her, she would probably have replied in a complete little essay on the theme, exactly a slate long, but would certainly have replied yes, for she loved him the decent hair-guard that went round his neck and took care of his decent silver watch was an object of envy to her so would miss peecher have gone round his neck and taken care of him of him insensible because he did not love miss peecher Miss Peacher's favourite pupil, who assisted her in her little household, was in attendance with a can of water to replenish her little watering pot, and sufficiently divined the state of Miss Peacher's affections to feel it necessary that she herself should love young Charlie Hexham. So there was a double palpitation among the double stocks and double wallflowers, when the master and the boy looked over the little gate. A fine evening, Miss Peacher, said the master a very fine evening mr headstone said miss peecher are you taking a walk hexam and i are going to take a long walk charming weather remarked miss peecher
1: for a long walk
0: ours is rather on business than mere pleasure said the master miss peecher inverting her watering-pot and very carefully shaking out the few last drops over a flower as if there were some special virtue in them which would make it a Jack's Beanstalk before morning, called for replenishment to her pupil, who had been speaking to the boy. "'Good-night, Miss Peacher,' said the master. "'Good-night, Mr. Headstone,' said the mistress. The pupil had been in her state of pupilage, so imbued with the class custom of stretching out an arm, as if to hail a cab or omnibus, whenever she found she had an observation on hand to offer to Miss Peacher, that she often did it in their domestic relations, and she did it now. "'Well, Mary-Anne,' said Miss Peacher, "'if you please, ma'am,'
1: Hexham said they were going to see his sister. "'But that can't be,
0: I think,' returned Miss Peacher,
1: "'because Mr. Headstone can have no business with
0: her.' Mary-Anne again hailed, "'Well,
1: Mary-Anne, if you please, ma'am, perhaps it's Hexham's business.' "'That may be,' said Miss Peacher. "'I didn't think of that, not that it matters at all.' "'Mary-Anne again hailed. "'Well, Mary-Anne, they say she's very handsome. "'Oh, Mary-Anne,
0: Mary-Anne,' returned Miss Peacher, "'slightly colouring and shaking her head a little out of humour. "'How often have I told you not to use that
1: vague expression, "'not to speak in that general way?' when you say they
0: say what do you mean part of speech they mary ann hooked her right arm behind her in her left hand as being under examination and replied personal pronoun person
1: they third person number they plural number then how many do you mean mary ann
0: two or more "'I beg your pardon, ma'am,' said Marianne, disconcerted now she came to think of it. "'But I don't know that I mean more than her brother himself.' As she said it, she
1: unhooked her arm. "'I felt convinced of it,' returned Miss Peacher, smiling again. "'Now pray, Marianne, be careful another time. He says is very different from they say, remember?' Difference between he says and they say. Give it me.
0: Marianne immediately hooked her right arm behind her in her left hand, an attitude absolutely necessary to the situation, and replied,
1: "One is indicative mood, present tense, third person singular verb active to say. Other is indicative mood, present tense, third person plural verb active to say. Why verb active, Marianne?" because it takes a pronoun after it in the objective case miss Peacher. very good indeed
0: remarked miss peecher with encouragement
1: in fact could not be better don't forget to apply it another time Anne.
0: this said miss peecher finished the watering of her flowers and went into her little official residence and took a refresher of the principal rivers and mountains of the world their breadths depths and heights before settling the measurements of the body of address for her own personal occupation bradley headstone and Charlie hexam duly got to the surrey side of westminster bridge and crossed the bridge and made along the middlesex shore towards millbank in this region are a certain little street called church street and a certain little blind square called Smith square in the centre of which last retreat is a very hideous church with four towers at the four corners generally resembling some petrified monster frightful and gigantic on its back with its legs in the air they found a tree near by in a corner and a blacksmith's forge and a timber yard and a dealer's in old iron what a rusty portion of a boiler and a great iron wheel or so meant by lying half buried in the dealer's forecourt nobody seemed to know or to want to know like the miller a questionable jollity in the song They cared for nobody, no, not they, and nobody cared for them. After making the round of this place, and noting that there was a deadly kind of repose on it, more as though it had taken laudanum and fallen into a natural rest, they stopped at the point where the street and the square joined, and where there were some little quiet houses in a row. To these Charlie Hexham finally led the way, and at one of these stopped. "'This must be where my sister lives, sir.'
1: "'This is where she came for a temporary lodging, soon after father's death.'
0: "'How often have you seen her since?' "'Why, only twice, sir,' returned the boy, with his former reluctance. "'But that's as much her doing as mine.' "'How does she support herself?' "'She was always a fair needlewoman, and she keeps the stockroom of a seaman's outfitter.' "'Does she ever work at her own lodging here?' "'Sometimes, by regular hours and regular occupation, are like at their place of business, I believe, sir. "'This is a number.' "'The boy knocked at a door, "'and the door promptly opened with a spring and a click. "'A parlour door within a small entry stood open, "'and disclosed a child, a dwarf, a girl, a something, "'sitting on a little low old-fashioned armchair "'which had a kind of little working bench before it. "'I can't get up.' said the child, because my back's bad,
1: and my legs are queer, but I'm the person of the house. "'Who else is at home?'
0: asked Charlie Hexham, staring. "'Nobody's at home at present,' returned the child, with a glib assertion of her dignity. "'Except the person of the house. What did you want, young man?' "'I want to see my sister.' "'Many young men have sisters,' returned the child. "'Give me your name, young man.' The queer little figure— and the queer, but not ugly little face, with its bright grey eyes, were so sharp that the sharpness of the manner seemed unavoidable, as if being turned out of that mould, it must be sharp. Hexam is my name, ah, indeed, said the person of the house. I
1: thought it might be Your sister will be in in about a quarter of an hour. I'm very fond of your sister. She's my particular friend. Take your seat, and this gentleman's name, Mr. Edstone my schoolmaster. Take a seat. And would you please, to shut the street door first? I can't very well do it myself, because my back's so bad, and my legs are
0: so queer.' They complied in silence, and the little figure went on with its work of gumming or gluing together, with a camel's hair-brush, certain pieces of cardboard and thin wood, previously cut into various shapes. The scissors and knives upon the bench showed that the child herself had cut them and the bright scraps of velvet and silk and ribbon, also strewn upon the bench, showed that when duly stuffed, and stuffing too was there, she was to cover them smartly. The dexterity of her nimble fingers was remarkable, and, as she brought two thin edges accurately together by giving them a little bite, she would glance at the visitors out of the corners of her grey eyes, with a look that out-sharpened all her other sharpness. "'You can't tell me the name of my trade. I'll be bound,' she said, after taking several of these observations. "'You make pincushions," said Charlie. "'What else do I make?' "'Pen-wipers,' said Bradley Headstone.
1: <laughs> "'What else do I make? You're a schoolmaster, but you can't tell me.'
0: "'You do something.' he returned, pointing to a corner of the little bench, with straw, but I don't know what. "'Well done, you,' cried the person of the house. "'I only make
1: pincushions and pen-wipers to use up my waist, but my straw really does belong to my business. Try again. What do I make with my straw?'
0: "'Dinner-mats.'
1: "'A schoolmaster, and says dinner-mats. I'll give you a clue to my trade, in a game of forfeits.' "'I love my love with a bee, because she's beautiful. "'I hate my love with a bee, because she's brazen. "'I took her to the sign of the blue boar, "'and I cheated her with her bonnets. "'Her name is Bouncer, and she lives in
0: Bedlam. "'Now, what do I make with my straw?' "'Ladies' bonnets.' "'Fine, ladies,' said the person of the house, nodding assent.
1: "'Dolls. I'm a doll's dressmaker.'
0: I hope it's a good business. The person of the house shrugged her shoulders, and shook her head.
1: No, poorly paid, and I'm often so pressed for time. I had a doll married last week, and was obliged to work all night, and it's not good for me, on account of my back being so bad, and my legs so queer.
0: They looked at the little creature with a wonder that did not diminish, and the schoolmaster said, I'm sorry your fine ladies are so inconsiderate. "'It's the way with them,' said the person of the house, shrugging her shoulders again.
1: "'And they take no care of their clothes, and they never keep to the same fashions a month. I work for a doll with
0: three daughters. Bless you, she's enough to ruin her husband.' The person of the house gave a weird little laugh here, and gave them another look out of the corners of her eyes. She had an elfin chin that was capable of great expression, and whenever she gave this look, she hitched this chin up— "'as if her eyes and her chin worked together on the same wires. "'Are you always as busy as you are now?'
1: "'Busier. I'm slack just now. "'I finished a large morning order the day before yesterday. "'Doll I worked for, lost a canary-bird.'
0: "'The person of the house gave another little laugh, "'and then nodded her head several times, as who should moralise.
1: "'Oh,
0: this world, this world!' "'Are you alone all day?' asked bradley headstone don't any of the neighbouring children ah lad cried the person of the house with a little scream as if the word had pricked her don't talk of children i can't bear children i know their tricks and their manners she said this with an angry little shake of a tight fist close before her eyes perhaps it scarcely required the teacher habit to perceive that the dolls dressmaker was inclined to be bitter on the difference between herself and other children but both master and pupil understood it so.
1: "'Always running about and screeching, always playing and fighting, always skip, skip, skipping on the pavement, and chalking it for their games. Oh, I know their tricks and their manners,'
0: shaking the little fist as before.
1: "'And that's not all. Ever so often calling names in through a person's keyhole, and imitating a person's back and legs. Oh, I know their tricks and their manners, and I will tell you what I do to punish them.' "'There's doors under the church in the square, black doors leading into black vaults. "'Well, I'd open one of those doors, and I'd cram em all in, "'and then I'd lock the door, and through the keyhole I'd blow in Pepper.'
0: "'What good would be the good of blowing in Pepper?' asked Charlie Hexham. "'To
1: set them sneezing,'
0: said the person of the house,
1: "'and make their eyes water.' and when they were all sneezing and inflamed i'd mock him through the keyhole just as they with their tricks and their manners mock a person through a person's
0: keyhole an uncommonly emphatic shake of her little fist close before her eyes seemed to ease the mind of the person of the house for she added with recovered composure no 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 children for me give me grown-ups It was difficult to guess the age of this strange creature, for her poor figure furnished no clue to it, and her face was at once so young and so old. Twelve, or at the most thirteen, might be near the mark. "'I always did like grown-ups,' she went on,
1: "'and always kept company with them. So sensible, sit so quiet, don't go prancing and capering about, and I mean always to keep among none but grown-ups till I marry.' I suppose I must make up my mind to marry one of these days.
0: She listened to a step outside that caught her ear, and there was a soft knock at the door. Pulling at a handle within her reach, she said, with a pleased laugh Now here, for instance, is a grown up that's my particular friend. And Lizzie Hexham in a black dress entered the room. Charlie you Taking him to her arms in the old way, of which he seemed a little ashamed, she saw no one else. There, there, Liz, all right, my dear. See, here's Mr. Edstone. Come with me. Her eyes met those of the schoolmaster, who had evidently expected to see a very different sort of person, and a murmured word or two of salutation passed between them. She was a little flurried by the unexpected visit, and the schoolmaster was not at his ease, but he never was. "'Quite.' "'I told Mr. Edstone you were not settled, Liz, "'but he was so kind as to take an interest in coming, "'and so I brought him. "'How well you look!' "'Bradley seemed to think so. "'Ah! don't she, don't she!' "'cried the person of the house, resuming her occupation, "'though the twilight was falling fast. "'I believe you she does. "'But
1: go on with your chat, one and all.' "'You, one, two, three, my company,
0: and don't mind
1: me.'
0: Pointing this impromptu rhyme with three points of her thin forefinger. "'I didn't expect a visit from you, Charlie,' said his sister. "'I supposed, if you wanted to see me,
1: you would have sent to me, appointing me to come somewhere near the school, as I did last time. I saw my brother near the school, sir,' to Bradley Headstone. "'Because it,
0: it's easier for me to go there than for him to come here. "'I work about midway between the two places.' "'You don't see much of one another,' said Bradley, not improving in respect of ease. "'No,' with rather a sad shake of her head,
1: Charlie always does
0: well, Mr. Headstone.' "'He could not do better. "'I regard his course as quite plain before him.' "'I hoped so. "'I'm so thankful.' "'So well
1: done of you, Charlie, dear. It is better for me not to come, except when he
0: wants me, between him and his prospects. You think so, Mr. Headstone?' Conscious that his pupil-teacher was looking for his answer, that he himself had suggested the boys keeping aloof from this sister, now seen for the first time face to face, Bradley Headstone stammered, "'Your brother is uh, very much occupied, you know. He has to work hard. One cannot but say that the less his uh, attention is diverted from his work, the better for his future. When he shall have established himself, why, then it will be another thing, then.' Lizzie shook her head again, and returned with a quiet smile. "'I always advised him, as you advise him. Did I not, Charlie?' "'Well,
1: never mind that now,' said the boy. "'How are you getting on?' "'Very well, Charlie. "'I want for nothing.' "'You have your own room here?' "'Oh, yes, upstairs. "'And it's
0: quiet and pleasant and airy.' "'And she always has the use of this room for visitors,' said the person of the house. "'screwing up one of her little bony fists, like an opera-glass, "'and looking through it with her eyes and her chin in that quaint accordance, "'Always this room for visitors, haven't you, Lizzie dear?' "'It happened that Bradley Headstone noticed a very slight action of Lizzie Hexham's hand, "'as though it checked the doll's dressmaker, "'and it happened that the latter noticed him in the same instant, "'for she made a double eyeglass of her two hands, "'looked at him through it, and cried with a waggish shake of her head,
1: Ah
0: uh-huh. caught you spying, did I? It might have fallen out so anyway, but Bradley Headstone also noticed that immediately after this, Lizzie, who had not taken off her bonnet, rather hurriedly proposed that as the room was getting dark they should go out into the air. They went out, the visitor saying good night to the doll's dressmaker, whom they left, leaning back in her chair with her arms crossed, singing to herself in a sweet, thoughtful little voice i'll saunter on by the river said bradley you will be glad to talk together as his uneasy figure went on before them among the evening shadows the boy said to his sister petulantly when are you going to settle yourself in some christian sort of place liz i thought you were going to do it
1: before now
0: i am very well where i am Charlie.
1: very well
0: where you are "'I'm ashamed to have brought Mr. Headstone with me.
1: "'How came you to get into such company as that little witch's?' "'By chance at first, it seemed, Charlie. "'But I think it must have been by something more than chance. "'For that child, you remember the bills upon the walls at home?' "'Confound the bills upon the walls at home! "'I
0: want to forget the bills upon the walls at home, "'and it would be better for you to do the same,' grumbled the boy. "'Well?' What of em? This child
1: is the grandchild of the old man. What old man?
0: The terrible drunken old man in the list slippers and the nightcap. The boy asked, rubbing his nose in a manner that half expressed vexation at hearing so much, and half curiosity to hear more, How came you to make that out? What girl you are!
1: The child's "'Father is employed by the house that employs me. "'That's how I came to know it, Charlie. "'The father is like his own father, "'a weak, wretched, trembling creature, "'falling to pieces, never sober, "'but a good workman, too, at the work he does. "'The mother is dead. "'This poor, ailing little creature "'has come to be what she is, "'surrounded by drunken people from her cradle, "'if she ever had one, Charlie.'
0: "'I don't see what you have to do with her for all that,' said the boy. "'Don't you, Charlie?' The boy looked doggedly at the river. They were at Millbank, and the river rolled on their left. His sister gently touched him on the shoulder, and pointed to it. "'Any compensation, restitution, never mind the word, you know my meaning, father's grave.' But he did not respond with any tenderness. After a moody silence, he broke out in an ill-used tone. "'It'll be a very hard
1: thing, Liz, if, when I am trying my best to get up in the world, you pull me back.' "'I, Charlie?' "'Yes, you, Liz. Why can't you let bygones be bygones? Why can't you, as Mr. Edson said to me this very evening, about another matter, leave well alone?' "'All we got to do is to turn our faces full in our new direction, "'and keep straight on, and
0: never look back, "'not even to try to make some amends. "'You are such a dreamer,' said the boy, with his former petulance. "'It's all very well when we sat before the fire, when we looked into the hollow down by
1: the flare. "'But we are looking into the real world now.' "'Ah!' "'We were looking into the real world then, Charlie.' "'I understand what you mean by that, but you're not justified in it. I don't want, as I raise myself, to shake you off, Liz. I want to carry you up with me. That's what I want to do, and mean to do. I know what I owe you. I said to Mr. Headstone this very evening. After all, my sister got me here. Well, then.' "'Don't pull me back, and hold me down. "'That's all I
0: ask. "'And surely that's not unconscionable.' She had kept a steadfast look upon him, and she answered with composure.
1: "'I am not here selfishly, Charlie, to please myself. "'I could not be too far from that river. "'Nor could you be too far from it to please me. "'Let us get quit of it equally.' "'Why should you linger about it any more than I? "'I'd give it a wide berth.'
0: "'I can't get away from it, I think,' said Lizzie, passing her hand across her forehead. "'It's no purpose of mine that I live by it still.'
1: "'There you go, Liz, dreaming again. "'You lodge yourself of your own accord, in a house, with a drunken tailor, I suppose, or something of the sort.' "'and a little crooked antic of a child, or old person, or whatever it is. "'And then you talk as if you were
0: drawn or driven here. "'Now, do be more practical.' "'She had been practical enough with him, in suffering and striving for him. "'But she only laid her hand upon his shoulder, not reproachfully, "'and tapped it twice or thrice. "'She had been used to do so to soothe him, "'when she carried him about, a child as heavy as herself.' Tears started to his eyes. Upon my word, Liz, drawing the back of his hand across them, I mean, to be a good brother to you, and to prove that I know what I owe you. All I say is, that I hope you control your fancies a little, on my account. I'll get a school, and then you must come and live with me, and you'll have to control your fancies then. So why not now? Now— Say I haven't vexed you. You haven't, Charlie, you haven't. And say I haven't hurt you. You haven't, Charlie. But this answer was less ready. Say you are sure I didn't mean to.
1: Oh, come, there's Mr. Edstone stopping and looking over the wall at the tide
0: to hint that it's time to go. Kiss me, and tell me that you know I didn't mean to hurt you. She told him so, and they embraced, and walked on, and came up with the schoolmaster. "'But we go your sister's way,' he remarked, when the boy told him he was ready. And with his cumbrous and uneasy action, he stiffly offered her his arm. Her hand was just within it, when she drew it back. He looked round with a start, as if he thought she had detected something that repelled her in the momentary touch. "'I—' will not go in just yet,' said Lizzie, "'And you have a distance before you, and will walk faster without me.' Being by this time close to Vauxhall Bridge, they resolved, in consequence, to take that way over the Thames, and they left her, Bradley Headstone giving her his hand at parting, and she thanking him for his care of her brother. The master and the pupil walked on, rapidly and silently. They had nearly crossed the bridge— when a gentleman came coolly sauntering towards them, with a cigar in his mouth, his coat thrown back, and his hands behind him. Something in the careless manner of this person, and in a certain lazily arrogant air with which he approached, holding possession of twice as much pavement as another would have claimed, instantly caught the boy's attention. As the gentleman passed, the boy looked at him narrowly, and then stood still, looking after him. "'Who is that you stare after?' asked Bradley.
1: "'Why?'
0: said the boy, with a confused and pondering frown upon his face. "'It is, that Rayburn one.' Bradley Headstone scrutinized the boy as closely as the boy had scrutinized the gentleman. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Headstone, but I couldn't help wondering what in the world brought him here.' Though he said it, as if his wonder were past, at the same time resuming the walk, it was not lost upon the master, that he looked over his shoulder after speaking, and that the same perplexed and pondering frown was heavy on his face. "'You don't appear to like your friend, Hexham.' "'I don't like him,' said the boy. "'Why not?' "'He took hold of me, by the chin, in a precious impertinent way, the first time I ever saw him,' said the boy again why for nothing or-it's much the same-because something i happened to say about my sister didn't happen to please him then he knows your sister he didn't at the time said the boy still moodily pondering does now the boy had so lost himself that he looked at mr bradley headstone as they walked on side by side without attempting to reply until the question had been repeated Then he nodded, and answered, "'Yes, sir.' "'Going to see her, I dare say.' "'It can't be,' said the boy quickly. "'He doesn't know her well enough. I should like to catch him at it.' When they had walked on for a time, more rapidly than before, the master said, clasping the pupil's arm between the elbow and the shoulder with his hand, "'You were going to tell me something about that person. What did you say his name was?'
1: "'Rayburn. Mr. Eugene Rayburn.
0: He is what they call a barrister. with nothing to do. The first time he came to our old place was when my father was alive. He came on business. Not that it was his business. He never had any business. He was brought by a friend of his.' "'And the other times?' "'There was only one other time that I know of, when my father was killed by accident. He chanced to be one of the finders. He was mooning about, I suppose, taking liberties with people's chins, but there he was, somehow. He brought the news out to my sister early in the morning, and brought Miss Abby Potterson, a neighbour, to help break it to her. He was mooning about the house when I was fetched home in the afternoon. They didn't know where to find me till my sister could be brought round sufficiently to tell them, and then he mooned away. "'And is that all?' "'That's all, sir.' Bradley Headstone gradually released the boy's arm, as if he were thoughtful, and they walked on side by side as before. After a long silence between them, Bradley resumed the talk. "'I suppose your sister,' with a curious break both before and after the words, "'has received hardly any teaching, Hexham.' hardly any, sir. Sacrificed, no doubt, to her father's objections, I remember them in your case, yet your sister scarcely looks or speaks like an ignorant person. Lizzie has as much thought as the best, Mr Headstone, too much, perhaps, without teaching.
1: I used to call the fire at home her books, for well, she was always full of
0: fancies, sometimes quite wise fancies, considering, when she sat looking at it i don't like that said bradley headstone his pupil was a little surprised by this striking in with so sudden and decided and emotional an objection but took it as a proof of the master's interest in himself it emboldened him to say i've never th- brought myself to mention it openly to you mr headstone and you're my witness that i couldn't even make up my mind to take it from you before we came out to-night it's a painful thing to think that if i get on as well as you hope i shall be i won't say disgraced because i don't mean disgraced but rather put to the blush if it was known by a sister who has been very good to me yes said bradley headstone in a slurring way for his mind scarcely seemed to touch that point so smoothly did it glide to another and there is this possibility to consider. Some man who had worked his way might come to admire your sister, and might even in time bring himself to think of marrying your sister, and it would be a sad drawback and a heavy penalty upon him if, overcoming in his mind other inequalities of condition and other considerations against it, this inequality and this consideration remained in full force that's much my own meaning sir ay ay said bradley headstone but you spoke of a mere brother Now, the case i have supposed would be a much stronger case because an admirer a husband would form the connection voluntarily besides being obliged to proclaim it which a brother is not After all, you know, it must be said of you that you couldn't help yourself, while it would be said of him, with equal reason, that he could. That's true, sir. Sometimes, since Lizzie was left free by father's death, I've thought that such a young woman might soon acquire more than enough to pass muster, and sometimes I've even thought that perhaps Miss Peacher— For the purpose, I would advise not Miss Peacher— Badly, Headstone struck in with a recurrence of his late decision of manner. Would you be so kind as to think of it for me, Mr. Headstone? Yes, Hexam. Yes, no, I'll think of it. I'll think maturely of it. I'll think well of it. Their walk was almost a silent one afterwards, until it ended at the schoolhouse. There, one of neat Miss Peach's little windows, like the eyes in Needles, was illuminated and in a corner near it sat Mary Anne watching, while Miss Peacher at the table stitched at the neat little body she was making up by brown paper pattern for her own wearing. N.B., Miss Peacher, and Miss Peacher's pupils, were not much encouraged in the unscholastic art of needlework, by government. Mary Anne, with her face to the window, held her arm up.
1: "'Well, Mary Anne?' "'Mr. Headstone coming home, ma'am.'
0: In about a minute, Mary Anne hailed again.
1: "'Yes, Mary Anne?' "'Gone in, and locked his door, ma'am.'
0: Miss Peacher repressed a sigh, as she gathered her work together for bed, and transfixed that part of her dress, where her heart would have been, if she had had the dress on, with a sharp, sharp needle. End of Book Two, Chapter One Book two, chapter two, of our mutual friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our mutual friend by Charles Dickens. Book two, Birds of a Feather, chapter two, still educational. The person of the house, doll's dressmaker and manufacturer of ornamental pincushions and penwipers sat in her quaint little low arm-chair, singing in the dark, until Lizzie came back. The person of the house had attained that dignity, while yet of very tender years indeed, through being the only trustworthy person in the house.
1: Well, Lizzie,
0: Missy Wizzie, said she, breaking off in her song,
1: what's the news out of doors?
0: What's the news indoors? "'returned Lizzie playfully smoothing the bright, long, fair hair, "'which grew very luxuriant and beautiful, "'on the head of the doll's dressmaker.
1: "'Let me see,' said the blind man. "'Why, the last news is that I don't mean to marry your brother.'
0: "'No?'
1: "'No!'
0: "'Shaking her head and her chin, "'don't
1: like the boy.' "'What do you say
0: to his master?' "'I say I think he's bespoke.' Lizzie finished putting the hair carefully back over the misshapen shoulders, and then lighted a candle. It showed the little parlour to be dingy, but orderly and clean. She stood it on the mantelshelf, remote from the dressmaker's eyes, and then put the room door open, and the house door open, and turned the little low chair and its occupant towards the outer air. It was a sultry night, and this was a fine-weather arrangement when the day's work was done. To complete it, She seated herself in a chair by the side of the little chair, and protectingly drew under her arm the spare hand that crept up to her.
1: "'This is what your loving Jenny Wren calls the best time in the day and night,'
0: said the person of the house. Her real name was Fanny Cleaver, but she had long ago chosen to bestow upon herself the appellation of Miss Jenny Wren. "'I've been thinking,' Jenny went on, "'As I sat at work
1: to-day, what a thing it would be "'if I should be able to have your company till I am married, "'or at least courted, because when I am courted, "'I shall make him do some of the things that you do for me. "'He couldn't brush my hair like you do, "'or help me up and down stairs like you do, "'and he couldn't do anything like you do, "'but he could take my work home, "'and he could call for orders in his clumsy way, "'and he shall, too.' "'I'll trot him about, I can tell
0: him.' "'Jenny Wren had her personal vanities, happily for her, "'and no intentions were stronger in her breast "'than the various trials and torments that were, "'in the fullness of time, to be inflicted upon him. "'Wherever he may happen to be, just at present, "'or whoever he may happen to be,' said Miss Wren, "'I know his tricks and his manners, "'and I give him warning to look out.' "'Don't you think you're rather hard upon him?' asked her friend, smiling and smoothing her hair. "'Not a bit,' replied the sage Miss Wren, with an air of vast experience. "'My dear, they don't care for you,
1: those fellows, if you're not hard upon them. But I was saying, if I should be able to have your company—' "'Ah, what a large
0: if, ain't it?' "'I have no intention of parting company, Jenny.' "'Don't say that, or you'll go directly.' "'Am I so little to be relied upon? "'You're more to be relied upon than silver and gold.' "'As she said it, Miss Wren suddenly broke off, "'screwed up her eyes and her chin, "'and looked prodigiously knowing. "'Aha! Who comes here? A grenadier? "'What does he want? A pot
1: of beer. "'And nothing else in the world, my dear?'
0: A man's figure paused on the pavement at the outer door.
1: Mr Eugene Rayburn, ain't it?
0: said Miss Wren. So I am told, was the answer.
1: You may come in, if you're good.
0: I am not good, said Eugene, but I'll come in. He gave his hand to Jenny Wren, and he gave his hand to Lizzie, and he stood leaning by the door at Lizzie's side. He had been strolling with his cigar, he said. It was smoked out and gone by this time, and he had strolled round to return in that direction that he might look in as he passed. Had she not seen her brother to-night? Yes, said Lizzie, whose manner was a little troubled. Gracious condescension on our brother's part. Mr. Eugene Rayburn thought he had passed my young gentleman on the bridge yonder. Who was his friend with him? The schoolmaster. To be sure, looked like it. Lizzie sat so still, that one could not have said wherein the fact of her manner being troubled was expressed, and yet one could not have doubted it. Eugene was as easy as ever, but perhaps, as she sat with her eyes cast down, it might have been rather more perceptible that his attention was concentrated upon her for certain moments than its concentration upon any subject for any short time ever was, elsewhere. "'I have nothing to report, Lizzie said Eugene, but having promised you that an eye should be always kept on Mr. Riderhood through my friend Lightwood, I like occasionally to renew my assurance that I keep my promise, and keep my friend up to the mark.
1: I should not have doubted it, sir.
0: Generally I confess myself a man to be doubted, returned Eugene coolly, for all that.
1: Why are you
0: asked the sharp Miss Wren. Because, my dear, said the airy Eugene, I am a bad, idle dog.
1: Then why don't you reform and be a good dog?
0: inquired Miss Wren. Because, my dear, returned Eugene, there's nobody who makes it worth my while. Have you considered my suggestion, Lizzie? This in a lower voice but only as if it were a graver matter, not at all to the exclusion of the person of the house. "'I have thought of it, Mr. Rayburn, but I have not been able to make up my mind to accept it.' "'False pride,' said Eugene. "'I think not, Mr. Rayburn. I hope not.' "'False pride,' repeated Eugene. "'Why? What else is it? A thing is worth nothing in itself.' the thing is worth nothing to me what can it be worth to me you know the most i make of it i propose to be of some use to somebody which i never was in this world and never shall be on any other occasion by paying some qualified person of your own sex and age so many, or rather so few, contemptible shillings to come here certain nights in the week, and give you certain instruction which you wouldn't want if you hadn't been a self-denying daughter and sister. You know that it's good to have it, or you would never have so devoted yourself to your brother's having it. Then why not have it? Especially when our friend Miss Jenny here would profit by it, too, if I propose to be the teacher." or to attend the lessons, obviously incongruous. But as to that, I might as well be on the other side of the globe, or not on the globe at all. False pride, Lizzie, because true pride wouldn't shame, or be shamed by, your thankless brother. True pride wouldn't have schoolmasters brought here, like doctors, to look at a bad case. True pride would go to work and do it. "'You know that well enough, for you know that your own true pride "'would do it to-morrow, if you had the ways and means "'which false pride won't let me supply. "'Very well. I add no more than this. "'Your false pride does wrong to yourself, and does wrong to your dead father.' "'How to my father, Mr. Rayburn?' she asked, with an anxious face. "'How to your father? Can you ask?' by perpetuating the consequences of his ignorant and blind obstinacy, by resolving not to set right the wrong he did you, by determining that the deprivation to which he condemned you, and which he forced upon you, shall always rest upon his head. It chanced to be a subtle string to sound, in her who had so spoken to her brother within the hour. It sounded far more forcibly, because of the change in the speaker for the moment, the passing appearance of earnestness, complete conviction, injured resentment of suspicion, generous and unselfish interest, all these qualities in him usually so light and careless, she felt to be inseparable from some touch of their opposites in her own breast. She thought, had she, so far below him and so different, rejected this disinterestedness, because of some vain misgiving, that he sought her out, or heeded any personal attractions that he might descry in her. The poor girl, pure of heart and purpose, could not bear to think of it. Sinking before her own eyes, as she suspected herself of it, she drooped her head, as though she had done him some wicked and grievous injury, and broke into silent tears. "'Don't be distressed,' said Eugene, very, very kindly. "'I hope it is not I who have distressed you.' I meant no more than to put the matter in its true light before you, though I acknowledge I did it selfishly enough, for I am disappointed.' "'Disappointed of doing her a service? How else could he be disappointed?' "'It won't break my heart,' laughed Eugene. "'It won't stay by me eight and forty hours, but I am genuinely disappointed.' I had set my fancy on doing this little thing for you, and for our friend Miss Jenny. The novelty of my doing anything of the least useful had its charms. I see now that I might have managed it better. I might have affected to do it wholly for our friend Miss J. I might have got myself up, morally, as Sir Eugene Bountiful. But upon my soul I can't make flourishes, and I would rather be disappointed than try.' If he meant to follow home what was in Lizzie's thoughts, it was skilfully done. If he followed it by mere fortuitous coincidence, it was done by an evil chance. It opened out so naturally before me, said Eugene, the ball seemed so thrown into my hands by accident. I happened to be originally brought into contact with you, Lizzie, on those two occasions that you know of. I happen to be able to promise you that a watch shall be kept upon that false accuser, Riderhood. I happen to be able to give you some little consolation in the darkest hour of your distress, by assuring you that I don't believe him. On the same occasion, I tell you that I am the idlest and least of lawyers, but I am better than none.' in a case I have noted down with my own hand, and that you may be always sure of my best help, and, incidentally, of Lightwood's too, in your efforts to clear your father. So, it gradually takes my fancy that I may help you, so easily, to clear your father of that other blame which I mentioned a few minutes ago, and which is a just and real one. I hope I have explained myself, for I am heartily sorry to have distressed you. I hate to claim to mean well, but I really did mean honestly and simply well, and I want you to know it. "'I've never doubted that, Mr. Rayburn,' said Lizzie. the more repentant, the less he claimed. "'I'm very glad to hear it, though if you had quite understood my whole meaning at first, I think you would not have refused. Do you think you would?' "'I don't know that I should, Mr. Rayburn.' well then why refuse now you do understand it it's not easy for me to talk to you returned lizzie in some confusion for you see all the consequences of what i say as soon as i say it take all the consequences laughed eugene and take away my disappointment lizzie hexham as i truly respect you and as i am your friend and a poor devil of a gentleman "'I protest I don't even now understand why you hesitate.' There was an appearance of openness, trustfulness, unsuspecting generosity, in his words and manner, that won the poor girl over. And not only won her over, but again caused her to feel as though she had been influenced by the opposite qualities, with vanity at their head. "'I will not hesitate any longer, Mr. Rayburn.' I hope you will not think the worse of me for having hesitated at all, for myself and for Jenny. You let me answer for you, Jenny, dear?' The little creature had been leaning back, attentive, with her elbows resting on the elbows of her chair, and her chin upon her hands. Without changing her attitude, she answered, "'Yes!' So suddenly, that it rather seemed as if she had chopped the monosyllable and spoken it. "'For myself, and for Jenny, I thankfully accept your kind offer.' "'Agreed. Dismissed,' said Eugene, giving Lizzie his hand, before lightly waving it, as if he waved the whole subject away. "'I hope it may not be often that so much is made of so little.' Then he fell to talking playfully with Jenny Wren. "'I think of setting up a doll, Miss Jenny,' he said. "'You had better not,' replied the dressmaker. "'Why not?' "'You are sure to break it. All you children do.' "'But that makes good for trade, you know, Miss Wren,' returned Eugene. "'Much as people's breaking promises and contracts and bargains of all sorts makes good for my trade.' "'I don't know about that,' Miss Wren retorted. "'But you'd better, by half, set up a pen-wiper, and turn industrious and use it.' "'Why, if we were all as industrious as you, little busybody, we should begin to work as soon as we could crawl, and there would be a bad thing.' "'Do you mean,' returned the little creature, with a flush suffusing her face, "'bad for your backs and legs?' "'No, no, no, no,' no," said Eugene, shocked to do him justice at the thought of trifling with her infirmity, "'bad for business, bad for business. If we all set to work as soon as we could use our hands, it would be all over with the dolls' dressmakers.' "'There's something in that,' replied Miss Wren. "'You have a sort of an idea in your noddle sometimes.' Then, in a changed tone, "'Talking of ideas, my lizzie. they were sitting side by side, as they had sat at first, "'I wonder how it happens, that when I am work, work, working here, all alone in the summer-time,
1: I smell flowers.'
0: "'As a commonplace individual, I should say,' Eugene suggested languidly, "'for he was growing weary of the person of the house, "'that you smell flowers because you do smell flowers.' "'No, I don't,' said the little creature, "'resting one arm upon the elbow of her chair, "'resting her chin upon that hand, "'and looking vacantly before her.
1: "'This is not a flowery neighbourhood. "'It's anything but that. "'And yet, as I sit at work, "'I smell miles of flowers.' I smell roses till I think I see the rose-leaves lying in heaps, bushels, on the floor. I smell fallen leaves till I put down my hand, so, and expect to make them rustle. I smell the white and the pink may in the hedges, and all sorts of flowers that I never was among, for I have seen very few flowers indeed in my life.
0: Pleasant fancies to have, Jenny dear. "'said her friend, with a glance towards Eugene, "'as if she would have asked him "'whether they were given the child in compensation for her losses. "'So I think, Lizzie, when they come to me. "'And the birds are here. "'Oh!' cried the little creature, "'holding out her hand and looking upward. "'How they sing!' "'There was something in the face and action for the moment, "'quite inspired and beautiful.' Then the chin dropped, musingly, upon the hand again. "'I dare say, my birds sing better than other birds,
1: and my flowers smell better than other flowers. For when I was a little child,'
0: in a tone as though it were ages ago,
1: "'the children that I used to see early in the morning were very different from any others that I ever saw. They were not like me. They were not chilled, anxious, ragged, or beaten. They were never in pain.' They were not like the children of the neighbours. They never made me tremble all over by setting up shrill noises, and they never mocked me. Such numbers of them, too, all in white dresses and with something shining on the borders and on their heads, that I have never been able to imitate with my work, though I know it so well. They used to come down in long, bright, slanting rows, and say all together, "'Who is this in pain? Who is this in pain?' When I told them who it was, they answered, Come and play with us. When I said, I never play, I can't play, they swept about me, and took me up, and made me light. Then it was all delicious ease and rest, till they laid me down, and said all together, Have patience, and we will come again. Whenever they came back I used to know they were coming before I saw the long bright rose by hearing them ask, altogether a long way off, Who is this in pain? Who is this in pain? And I used to cry out, Oh, my blessed children, it's poor me. Have pity on me. Take me up and make me light.
0: By degrees, as she progressed in this remembrance, the hand was raised The late, ecstatic look returned, and she became quite beautiful. Having so paused for a moment, silent, with a listening smile upon her face, she looked round, and recalled herself. "'What
1: poor fun you think me, don't you, Mr. Rayburn? You may well look tired of me, but it's Saturday night, and I won't detain you.'
0: "'That is to say, Miss Wren,' observed Eugene, quite ready to profit by the hint, "'you wish me to go?' "'Well,' It's Saturday night, she returned,
1: and my child's coming home, and my child is a troublesome bad child, and cost me a world of scolding. I would rather you didn't see my child.
0: A uh, doll? said Eugene, not understanding and looking for an explanation. But Lizzie, with her lips only shaping the two words, her father, he delayed no longer. He took his leave immediately. At the corner of the street, he stopped to light another cigar, and possibly to ask himself what he was doing otherwise. If so, the answer was indefinite and vague. Who knows what he is doing? Who is careless what he does? A man stumbled against him as he turned away, who mumbled some maudlin apology. Looking after this man, Eugene saw him go in at the door by which he himself had just come out. On the man stumbling into the room, Lizzie rose to leave it. Don't go away, Miss Exham. he said in a submissive manner, speaking thickly and with difficulty. Don't fly from unfortunate man in shattered state
1: of health. Give poor invalid honour of your company. It ain't ain't
0: catching Lizzie murmured that she had something to do in her own room. "'and went away upstairs. "'How's my Jenny?' said the man timidly. "'How's
1: my Jenny Wren? "'Best of children,
0: object dearest affections, "'broken-hearted invalid?' "'To which the person of the house, "'stretching out her arm in an attitude of command, "'replied with irresponsive asperity. "'Go along with you.
1: "'Go along into your corner.' "'Get into your corner directly.'
0: "'The wretched spectacle made as if he would have offered some remonstrance, "'but not venturing to resist the person of the house, "'thought better of it, and went and sat down on a particular chair of disgrace. Oh! cried the person of the house, pointing her little finger.
1: "'You bad old boy! Oh, you
0: naughty, wicked creature! "'What do you mean by it?' The shaking figure, unnerved and disjointed from head to foot, put out its two hands a little way, as making overtures of peace and reconciliation. Abject tears stood in its eyes, and stained the blotched red of its cheeks. The swollen, lead-coloured underlip trembled with a shameful whine. The whole indecorous, threadbare ruin, from the broken shoes to the prematurely grey, scanty hair, grovelled not with any sense worthy to be called a sense of this dire reversal of the places of parent and child, but in a pitiful expostulation to be let off from a scolding. "'I know your tricks and your manners,' cried Miss Wren. "'I know where you've been to,' which, indeed, it did not require discernment to discover. "'Oh, you disgraceful old chap!' The very breathing of the figure was contemptible as it laboured and rattled in that operation, like a blundering clock.
1: "'Slave, slave, slave, from morning to night,'
0: pursued the person of the house. "'And all for this? What do you mean by it?' There was something in that emphasised, what, which absurdly frightened the figure. As often as the person of the house worked her way round to it, even as soon as he saw it was coming, he collapsed in an extra degree.' "'I wish you had been taken
1: up and locked up,'
0: said the person of the house.
1: "'I wish you had been poked into cells and black holes, and run over by rats and spiders and beetles. I know their tricks, and their manners, and they'd have tickled you nicely. Ain't you ashamed of yourself?'
0: "'Yes, my dear,' stammered the father.
1: "'Then—'
0: said the person of the house, terrifying him, by a grand muster of her spirits and forces, before recurring to the emphatic word,
1: "'What do you mean by
0: it?' "'Circumstances over which had no control,' was the miserable creature's plea in extenuation. "'I'll circumstance you and control you,' retorted the person of the house, speaking with vehement sharpness.
1: "'If you talk in that way—' I'll give you in charge to the police and have you fined five shillings when you can't pay and then I won't pay the money for you and you'll be transported for life how should you like to be transported for life shouldn't like it poor
0: shattered invalid troubled nobody long cried the wretched figure come come said the person of the house, tapping the table near her, in a business-like manner, and shaking her head and chin. "'You know what you've got to do. Put down your money this instant.' The obedient figure began to rummage in its pockets.
1: "'Spent a fortune out of your wages. I'll be
0: bound,' said the person of the house. "'Put it here. All you've got left, every farthing.' Such a business as he made of collecting it from his dog's-eared pockets— "'of expecting it in this pocket, and not finding it, "'of not expecting it in that pocket, and passing it over, "'of finding no pocket where that other pocket ought to be.' "'Is this all?' demanded the person of the house, "'when a confused heap of pence and shillings lay on the table. "Got Now more,' was the rueful answer, "'with an accordant shake of the head.
1: "'Let me make sure. You know what you've got to do?' "'Turn all your pockets inside out, and leave em so,'
0: cried the person of the house. He obeyed, and if anything could have made him look more abject, or more dismally ridiculous than before, it would have been his so displaying himself. "'He is, but
1: seven and a- eight and
0: exclaimed Miss Wren, after reducing the heap to order.
1: "'Oh, you prodigal old son! Now you shall be starved!' "'No, don't starve me,'
0: he urged, whimpering.
1: "'If you were treated as you ought to be,' said Miss Wren, "'you'd be fed upon the skewers of cat's meat. Only the skewers after the cat's had had the meat. As it is, go to
0: bed.' When he stumbled out of the corner to comply, he again put out both his hands and pleaded— circumstances over which no control get along with you to bed cried miss wren snapping him up don't speak to me i'm not going to forgive you go to bed this moment seeing another emphatic what upon its way he evaded it by complying and was heard to shuffle heavily upstairs and shut his door and throw himself on his bed within a little while afterwards lizzie came down "'Shall we have our supper, Jenny dear?' "'Oh,
1: bless us and save us! We need have something to keep us going,'
0: returned Miss Jenny, shrugging her shoulders. Lizzie laid a cloth upon the little bench, more handy for the person of the house than an ordinary table, and put upon it such plain fare as they were accustomed to have, and drew up a stool for herself. "'Now, for supper, what are you thinking of, Jenny darling?' "'I was thinking—' she returned, coming out of a deep study,
1: "'what I would do to him "'if he should turn out a drunkard.'
0: "'Oh, but he won't,' said Lizzie. "'You take care of that beforehand.' "'I shall try to take care of it beforehand,
1: "'but he might deceive me. "'Oh, my dear, all those fellows "'with their tricks and their manners "'do deceive,'
0: with a little fist "'in full action.
1: "'And if so, "'I'll tell you what I think I'd do. "'When he was asleep, I'd make a spoon red-hot, "'and I'd have some boiling liquor bubbling in a saucepan, "'and I'd take it out hissing, "'and I'd open his mouth with the other hand, "'or perhaps he'd sleep with his mouth ready open, "'and I'd pour it down his throat and blister it and choke him.'
0: "'I'm sure you would do no such horrible thing,' said Lizzie.
1: "'Shouldn't I? "'Well, perhaps I shouldn't
0: i should like to i'm equally sure you would not not even like to
1: well you generally know best only you haven't always
0: lived among it as i have lived and your back isn't bad and your legs are not queer as they went on with their supper lizzie tried to bring her round to that prettier and better state but the charm was broken The person of the house was the person of a house full of sordid shames and cares, with an upper room in which that abased figure was infecting even innocent sleep with sensual brutality and degradation. The doll's dressmaker had become a little quaint shrew, of the world, worldly, of the earth, earthy. Poor doll's dressmaker, how often so dragged down by hands that should have raised her up, How often so misdirected when losing her way on the eternal road, and asking guidance. Poor, poor little doll's dressmaker. End of Book Two. Chapter Two. Book Two. Chapter Three. Of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Birds of a Feather, Chapter Three, A Piece of Work. Britannia, sitting meditating one fine day, perhaps in the attitude in which she is presented on the copper coinage, discovers all of a sudden that she wants veneering in Parliament. It occurs to her that Veneering is a representative man, which cannot in these times be doubted, and that Her Majesty's faithful commons are incomplete without him. So, Britannia mentions to a legal gentleman of her acquaintance, that if Veneering will put down five thousand pounds, he may write a couple of initial letters after his name, at the extremely cheap rate of two thousand five hundred per letter. It is clearly understood between Britannia and the legal gentleman that nobody is to take up the five thousand pounds, but that being put down, they will disappear by magical conjuration and enchantment. The legal gentleman in Britannia's confidence going straight from that lady to Veneering, thus commissioned, Veneering declares himself highly flattered, but requires breathing time to ascertain whether his friends will rally round him above all things he says it behoves him to be clear at a crisis of this importance whether his friends will rally round him the legal gentleman in the interests of his client cannot allow much time for this purpose as the lady rather thinks she knows somebody prepared to put down six thousand pounds but he says he will give veneering four hours veneering then says to mrs veneering we must work and throws himself into a handsome cab Mrs. Veneering, in the same moment, relinquishes baby to nurse, presses her aquiline hands upon her brow, to arrange the throbbing intellect within, orders out the carriage, and repeats in a distracted and devoted manner, compounded of Ophelia and any self-immolating female of antiquity you may prefer, "'We must work!' Veneering, having instructed his driver to charge at the public in the streets, like the life-guards at Waterloo, is driven furiously to Duke Street, St. James's there he finds twemlow in his lodgings fresh from the hands of a secret artist who has been doing something to his hair with yolks of eggs the process requiring that twemlow shall for two hours after the application allow his hair to stick upright and dry gradually he is in an appropriate state for the receipt of startling intelligence looking equally like the monument on fish street hill and king priam on a certain incendiary occasion not wholly unknown as a neat point from the classics my dear twemlow "'says Veneering, grasping both his hands, "'as the dearest and oldest of my friends. "'Then there can be no more doubt about it in future,' "'thinks Twemlow, and I am. "'Are you of opinion that your cousin, Lord Snigsworth, "'would give his name as a member of my committee? "'I don't go so far as to ask for his lordship. "'I only ask for his name. "'Do you think he would give me his name?' "'In sudden low spirits, Twemlow replies,' i don't think he would my political opinions says veneering not previously aware of having any are identical with those of lord snigsworth and perhaps as a matter of public feeling and public principle lord snigsworth would give me his name it uh, might be so says twemlow but and perplexedly scratching his head forgetful of the yolks of eggs is the more discomforted by being reminded how sticky he is. "'Between such old and intimate friends as ourselves,' pursues Veneering, "'there should in such a case be no reserve. Promise me that if I ask you to do anything for me which you don't like to do, or feel the slightest difficulty in doing, you will freely tell me so.' This Twemlow is so kind as to promise, with every appearance of most heartily intending to keep his word would you have any objection to write down to snigsworthy park and ask this favour of lord snigsworth of course if it were granted i should know that i owed it solely to you while at the same time you would put it to lord snigsworth entirely upon public grounds would you have any objection says twemlow with his hand to his forehead you have exacted a promise from me i have my dear twemlow "'You expect me to keep it honourably? "'I do, my dear Twemlow.' "'On the whole, then, observe me,' urges Twemlow, with great nicety, as if, in the case of its having been off the whole, he would have done it directly, "'on the whole, I must beg you to excuse me from addressing any communication to Lord Snicksworth.' "'Bless you! bless you!' says Veneering, horribly disappointed, but grasping him by both hands again, in a particularly fervent manner. It is not to be wondered at, that poor Twemlow should decline to inflict a letter on his noble cousin, who has gout in the temper, inasmuch as his noble cousin, who allows him a small annuity on which he lives, takes out of him, as the phrase goes, an extreme severity.' putting him, when he visits at Snigsworthy Park, under a kind of martial law, ordaining that he shall hang his hat on a particular peg, sit on a particular chair, talk on particular subjects to particular people, and perform particular exercises, such as sounding the praises of the family varnish, not to say pictures, and abstaining from the choicest of the family wines, unless expressly invited to partake. One thing, however, I can do for you says twemlow and that is uh, work for you veneering blesses him again i'll go says twemlow in a rising hurry of spirits to the club let us see now what o'clock is it twenty minutes to eleven i'll be says twemlow at the club by ten minutes to twelve and i'll never leave it all day veneering feels "'that his friends are rallying round him, and says, "'Thank you, thank you. "'I knew I could rely upon you. "'I said to Anastasia, before leaving home just now, "'to come to you. "'Of course, the first friend I have seen "'on a subject so momentous to me, my dear Twemlow, "'I said to Anastasia, we must work.' "'You were right, you were right,' replies Twemlow. "'Tell me, is she working?' "'She is.' says Veneering. Good, cries Twemlow, polite little gentleman that he is. A woman's uh, tact is invaluable. To have the dear sex with us is to have everything with us. But you have not imparted to me, remarks Veneering, what you think of my entering the House of Commons. I think, rejoins Twemlow feelingly, that— "'It is the best club in London.' Veneering again blesses him, plunges downstairs, rushes into his hansom, and directs the driver to be up and at the British public, and to charge into the city. Meanwhile, Tremlow, in an increasing hurry of spirits, gets his hair down as well as he can, which is not very well, for after these glutinous applications it is restive, and has a surface on it somewhat in the nature of pastry, and gets to the club by the appointed time. At the club he promptly secures a large window, writing materials, and all the newspapers, and establishes himself immovable, to be respectfully contemplated by Pall Mall. Sometimes when a man enters, who nods to him, Twemlow says, Do you know veneering? Man says, No, member of the club. Twemlow says, Yes, coming in for pocket breeches. Man says, Ah, hope he may find it worth the money. Yawns and saunters out. Towards six o'clock of the afternoon, Twemlow begins to persuade himself that he is positively jaded with work, and thinks it much to be regretted that he was not brought up as a parliamentary agent. From Twemlow's, veneering dashes at Podsnap's place of business, finds Podsnap reading the paper, standing, and inclined to be oratorical over the astonishing discovery he has made that Italy is not England. Respectfully entreats Podsnap's pardon for stopping the flow of his words of wisdom, and informs him what is in the wind. Tells Podsnap that their political opinions are identical. Gives Podsnap to understand that he, Veneering, formed his political opinions while sitting at the feet of him, Podsnap. Seeks earnestly to know whether Podsnap will rally round him. Says Podsnap, something sternly, "'Now, first of all, Veneering, do you ask my advice?' veneering falters that as so old and so dear a friend yes yes that's all very well says podsnap but have you made up your mind to take this borough of pocket breeches on its own terms or do you ask my opinion whether you shall take it or leave it alone veneering repeats that his heart's desire and his soul's thirst are that podsnap shall rally round him now i'll be plain with you veneering says podsnap knitting his brows "'You will infer that I don't care about Parliament, from the fact of my not being there.' "'Why, of course, Veneering knows that. Of course, Veneering knows that if Podsnap chose to go there, he would be there, in a space of time that might be stated by the light and thoughtless as a jiffy.' "'It is not worth my while,' pursues Podsnap, becoming handsomely mollified, "'and it is the reverse of importance to my position. But it is not my wish to set myself up as law for another man, differently situated.' you think it is worth your while, and is important to your position. Is that so? Always with the proviso that Podsnap will rally round him. Veneering thinks it is so. Then you don't ask my advice, says Podsnap. Good, then I won't give it to you. But you do ask my help. Good, then I'll work for you. Veneering instantly blesses him, and apprises him that Twemlow is already working. Potsnap does not quite approve that anybody should be already working, regarding it rather than the light of a liberty, but tolerates Twemlow, and says he is a well-connected old female who will do no harm. "'I have nothing very particular to do to-day,' adds Podsnap, "'and I'll mix with some influential people. I had engaged myself to dinner, but I'll send Mrs. Podsnap and get off going myself, And I'll dine with you at eight. It's important we should report progress and compare notes.' now let me see you ought to have a couple of active energetic fellows of gentlemanly manners to go about veneering after cogitation thinks of boots and brewer whom i have met at your house says Potsnap. yes they'll do very well let them each have a cab and go about Veneering immediately mentions what a blessing he feels it to possess a friend capable of such grand administrative suggestions, and really is elated at this going about of Boots and Brewer, as an idea wearing an electioneering aspect, and looking desperately like business. Leaving Podsnap at a hand-gallop, he descends upon Boots and Brewer, who enthusiastically rally round him by at once bolting off in cabs, taking opposite directions then veneering repairs to the legal gentleman in britannia's confidence and with him transacts some delicate affairs of business and issues an address to the independent electors of pocket breeches announcing that he is coming among them for their suffrages as the mariner returns to the home of his early childhood a phrase which is none the worse for his never having been near the place in his life and not even now distinctly knowing where it is mrs veneering during the same eventful hours is not idle no sooner does the carriage turn out, all complete, than she turns into it, all complete, and gives the word to Lady Tippins's. That charmer dwells over a staymaker's and the Belgravian borders with a life-size model in the window on the ground floor, of a distinguished beauty in a blue petticoat, stay-lace in hand, looking over her shoulder at the town in innocent surprise, as well she may, to find herself dressing under the circumstances. Lady Tippins at home? Lady Tippins at home. With the room darkened, and her back, like the ladies at the ground-floor window, though for a different reason, cunningly turned towards the light. Lady Tippins is so surprised by seeing her dear Mrs. Veneering so early, in the middle of the night, the pretty creature calls it, that her eyelids almost go up under the influence of that emotion. To whom Mrs. Veneering incoherently communicates, how that Veneering has been offered pocket breeches, how that it is the time for rallying round, how that Veneering has said,— We must work. How that she is here, as a wife and mother, to entreat Lady Tippins to work. How that the carriage is at Lady Tippins' disposal, for purposes of work. How that she, proprietress of said brand-new elegant equipage, will return home on foot, on bleeding feet, if need be, to work, not specifying how, until she drops by the side of Baby's crib. "'My love,' says Lady Tippins, "'compose yourself. We'll bring him in.' Lady Tippin's really does work, and work the veneering horses, too, for she clatters about town all day, calling upon everybody she knows, and showing her entertaining powers and green fan to immense advantage, by rattling on with, My dear soul, what do you think? What do you suppose me to be? You'll never guess. I'm pretending to be an electioneering agent. And for what place of all places? "'Pocket-breeches. "'And why? "'Because the dearest friend I have in the world has bought it. "'And who is the dearest friend I have in the world? "'A man of the name of Veneering. "'Not omitting his wife, who is the other dearest friend I have in the world. "'And I positively declare I forgot their baby, who was the other. "'And we are carrying on this little farce to keep up appearances. "'And isn't it refreshing?' then my precious child the fun of it is that nobody knows who these veneerings are and that they know nobody and that they have a house out of the tales of the genie and give dinners out of the arabian nights curious to see em my dear say you know em come and dine with em they shan't bore you say who shall meet you we'll make up a party of our own and i'll engage that they shall not interfere with you for one single moment you really ought to see their gold and silver camels i call their dinner-table the caravan do come and dine with my veneerings my own veneerings my exclusive property the dearest friends i have in the world and above all my dear be sure you promise me your vote and interest and all sorts of plumpers for pocket-breeches for we couldn't think of spending sixpence on it my love and can only consent to be brought in by the spontaneous thingamies of the incorruptible what do you call ems Now, the point of view seized by the bewitching Tippins, that this same work and rallying round is to keep up appearances, may have something in it, but not all the truth. More is done, or considered to be done, which does as well, by taking cabs and going about, than the fair Tippins knew of. Many vast vague reputations have been made, solely by taking cabs and going about. This particularly obtains in all parliamentary affairs— Whether the business in hand be to get a man in, or get a man out, or get a man over, or promote a railway, or jockey a railway, or what else, nothing is understood to be so effectual as scouring nowhere in a violent hurry, in short, as taking cabs, and going about. Probably because this reason is in the air, Twemlow, far from being singular in his persuasion that he works like a Trojan, is capped by Podsnap, who in his turn is capped by Boots and Brewer. At eight o'clock, when all these hard workers assemble to dine at Veneerings, it is understood that the cabs of Boots and Brewer mustn't leave the door, but that pails of water must be brought from the nearest baiting-place, and cast over the horse's legs on the very spot, lest Boots and Brewer should have instant occasion to mountain away. Those fleet messengers require the analytical to see that their hats are deposited, where they can be laid hold of, at an instant's notice, and they dine— Remarkably well, though, with the air of firemen in charge of an engine, expecting intelligence of some tremendous conflagration. Mrs. Veneering faintly remarks, as dinner opens, that many such days would be too much for her. "'Many such days would be too much for all of us,' says Potsnap. "'But we'll bring him in.' "'We'll bring him in,' says Lady Tippins, sportively waving her green fan. "'Veneering! Forever!' "'We'll bring him in,' says Twemlow. "'We'll bring him in,' says Boots and Brewer. Strictly speaking, it would be hard to show cause why they should not bring him in, pocket-breeches having closed its little bargain, and there being no opposition. However, it is agreed that they must work to the last, and that if they did not work, something indefinite would happen. It is likewise agreed that they are all so exhausted with the work behind them, and need to be so fortified for the work before them, as to require peculiar strengthening from veneering cellar. Therefore the analytical has orders to produce the cream of the cream of his bins, and therefore it falls out that rallying becomes rather a trying word for the occasion. Lady Tippins being observed gamely to inculcate the necessity of rearing round their dear veneering, Podsnap advocating roaring round him, boots and brewer declaring their intention of reeling round him and veneering thanking his devoted friends one and all with great emotion for rarulla ruling round him in these inspiring moments brewer strikes out an idea which is the great hit of the day he consults his watch and says like guy fawkes he'll now go down to the house of commons and see how things look i'll keep about the lobby for an hour or so says Brewer, with a deeply mysterious countenance, and if things look well, I won't come back, but will order my cab for nine in the morning. You couldn't do better, says Potsnap. Veneering expresses his inability ever to acknowledge this last service. Tears stand in Mrs. Veneering's affectionate eyes. Boots shows envy, loses ground, and is regarded as possessing a second-rate mind. They all crowd to the door, to see Brewer off. Brewer says to his driver, Now, "'Is your horse pretty fresh?' Eyeing the animal with critical scrutiny, driver says he's as fresh as butter. "'Put him along, then,' says Brewer. House of commons?' Driver darts up. Brewer leaps in. They cheer him as he departs, and Mr. Podsnap says, "'Mark my words, sir, that's a man of resource. That's a man to make his way in life.' When the time comes for veneering to deliver a neat and appropriate stammer to the men of pocket-breeches, only Podsnap and Twemlow accompany him by railway to that sequestered spot. The legal gentleman is at the Bitches branch station, with an open carriage, with a printed bill, veneering for ever, stuck upon it, as if it were a wall, and they gloriously proceed, amidst the grins of the populace, to a feeble little town-hall on crutches, with some onions and bootlaces under it, which the legal gentleman says are a market, and from the front window of that edifice veneering speaks to the listening earth, in the moment of his taking his hat off podsnap as per agreement made with mrs veneering telegraphs to that wife and mother he's up veneering loses his way in the usual no thoroughfares of speech and podsnap and twemlow say "Here, hear and sometimes when he can't by any means back himself out of some very unlucky no thoroughfare "Here, here!" with an air of facetious conviction as if the ingenuity of the thing gave them a sensation of exquisite pleasure But Veneering makes two remarkably good points, so good that they are supposed to have been suggested to him by the legal gentleman in Britannia's confidence, while briefly conferring on the stairs. Point the first is this. Veneering institutes an original comparison between the country and a ship, pointedly calling the ship the vessel of the state, and the minister the man at the helm. Veneering's object is to let pocket breeches know that his friend on his right, Podsnap, is a man of wealth." "'Consequently,' says he, "'and, uh, gentlemen, when the timbers of the vessel of the state are unsound and the man at the helm is unskilful, would those great marine insurers, who rank among our world-famed merchant princes, would they insure her, gentlemen? Would they underwrite her? Would they incur a risk in her? Would they have confidence in her? Why, gentlemen, if I appealed to my honourable friend upon my right?' himself among the greatest and most respected of that great and much-respected class, he would answer, no. Point the second is this. The telling fact that Twemlow is related to Lord Snigsworth must be let off. Veneering supposes a state of public affairs that probably never could, by any possibility, exist, though this is not quite certain, in consequence of his picture being unintelligible to himself and everybody else, and thus proceeds." "'Why, gentlemen, if I were to indicate such a programme to any class of society, "'I say it would be received with derision, would be pointed at by the finger of scorn. "'If I indicated such a programme to any worthy and intelligent tradesman of your town, "'nay, I will here be personal, and say our town.' "'What would he reply?' "'He would reply, away with it.' "'That's what he would reply, gentlemen.' In his honest indignation, he would reply, "'Away with it!' "'But suppose, I mounted higher in the social scale.' Suppose I drew my arm through the arm of my respected friend upon my left, and, walking with him through the ancestral woods of his family, and under the spreading beeches of Snigsworthy Park, approached the noble hall, crossed the courtyard, entered by the door, went up the staircase, and, passing from room to room, found myself at last in the august presence of my friend's near kinsman, Lord Snigsworth.' and suppose i said to that venerable earl my lord i am here before your lordship presented by your lordship's near kinsman my friend upon my left to indicate that programme what was his lordship answer why he would answer away with it that's what he would answer gentlemen away with it unconsciously using in his exalted sphere the exact language of the worthy and intelligent tradesman of our town the near and dear kinsman of my friend upon my left would answer in his wrath away with it veneering finishes with this last success and mr podsnap telegraphs to mrs veneering he's down then dinner is had at the hotel with the legal gentleman and then there are in due succession nomination and declaration. Finally, Mr. Podsnap telegraphs to Mrs. Veneering, "'We have brought him in.' Another gorgeous dinner awaits them on their returning to the Veneering halls, and Lady Tippins awaits them, and Boots and Brewer await them. There is a modest assertion on everybody's part that everybody single-handed brought him in. But in the main it is conceded by all that that stroke of business on Brewer's part, in going down to the house that night to see how things looked, was the master-stroke. A touching little incident is related by Mrs. Veneering, in the course of the evening. Mrs. Veneering is habitually disposed to be tearful, and has an extra disposition that way after her late excitement. Previous to withdrawing from the dinner-table with Lady Tippins, she says, in a pathetic and physically weak manner, "'You will all think
1: it foolish of me, I know, but I must mention it. "'As I sat by Baby's crib on the night before the election, Baby was very uneasy in her sleep.'
0: The analytical chemist, who is gloomily looking on, has diabolical impulses to suggest wind and throw up his situation, but represses them. "'After an interval,
1: almost convulsive, Baby curled her little hands in one another, and smiled.'
0: Mrs. Veneering, stopping here, Mr. Potsnap deems it incumbent on him to say, "'I wonder why.' "'Could it be, I asked myself,' says Mrs. Veneering, looking about her for her pocket-handkerchief,
1: "'that the fairies were telling baby that her papa would shortly be an M.P.?
0: "'So overcome by the sentiment is Mrs. Veneering, "'that they all get up to make a clear stage for Veneering,' who goes round the table to the rescue and bears her out backward with her feet impressively scraping the carpet after remarking that her work has been too much for her strength whether the fairies made any mention of the five thousand pounds and it disagreed with baby is not speculated upon poor little Twemlow quite done up is touched and still continues touched after he is safely housed over the livery-stable yard in Duke-street, St. James's but there upon his sofa a tremendous consideration breaks in upon the mild gentleman putting all softer considerations to the rout gracious heavens now i have time to think of it he never saw one of his constituents in all his days until we saw them together after having paced the room in distress of mind with his hand to his forehead The innocent Twemlow returns to his sofa, and moans, "'I shall either go distracted or die of this man. He comes upon me too late in life. I am not strong enough to bear him.'" End of Book Two, Chapter Three Book Two, Chapter Four, of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Birds of a Feather, Chapter Four. Cupid prompted. To use the cold language of the world, Mrs. Alfred Lammle rapidly improved the acquaintance of Miss Podsnap. To use the warm language of Mrs. Lammle, she and her sweet Georgiana soon became one, in heart, in mind, in sentiment, in soul. Whenever Georgiana could escape from the thraldom of podsnappery, could throw off the bedclothes of the custard-coloured Phaeton, and get up, could shrink out of the range of her mother's rocking, and, so to speak, rescue her poor little frosty toes from being rocked over, she repaired to her friend Mrs. Alfred Lammle. "'Mrs. Podsnap by no means objected. "'As a consciously splendid woman, "'accustomed to overhear herself "'so denominated by elderly osteologists "'pursuing their studies in dinner society, "'Mrs. Podsnap could dispense with her daughter. "'Mr. Podsnap, for his part, "'on being informed where Georgiana was, "'swelled with patronage of the Lammles, "'that they, when unable to lay hold of him, "'should respectfully grasp at the hem of his mantle.' That they, when they could not bask in the glory of him, the sun, should take up with the pale reflected light of the watery young moon his daughter, appeared quite natural, becoming, and proper. It gave him a better opinion of the discretion of the Lammels, than he had heretofore held, as showing that they appreciated the value of the connection. So, Georgiana repairing to her friend, Mr. Podsnap, went out to dinner, and to dinner, and yet to dinner, arm in arm with Mrs. Potsnap settling his obstinate head in his cravat and shirt-collar, much as if he were performing on the Pandean pipes, in his own honour, the triumphal march—see, the conquering Podsnap comes, sound the trumpets, beat the drums. It was a trait in Mr. Podsnap's character—and in one form or other it will be generally seen to pervade the depths and shallows of Podsnappery—that he could not endure a hint of disparagement of any friend or acquaintance of his. How dare you! he would seem to say, in such a case. "'What do you mean? "'I have licensed this person. "'This person has taken out my certificate. "'Through this person you strike at me, "'Podsnap, the Great. "'And it is not that I particularly care "'for the person's dignity, "'but that I do most particularly care for Podsnap's. "'Hence, if any one in his presence "'had presumed to doubt the responsibility of the Lammles, "'he would have been mightily huffed. "'Not that any one did.' for veneering M.P. was always the authority for their being very rich, and perhaps believed it, as indeed he might, if he chose, for anything he knew of the matter. Mr. and Mrs. Lammle's house in Sackville Street, Piccadilly, was but a temporary residence. It has done well enough, they informed their friends, for Mr. Lammle, when a bachelor, but it would not do now. So they were always looking at palatial residences in the best situations, and always very nearly taking or buying one, but never quite concluding the bargain. Hereby they made for themselves a shining little reputation apart. People said on seeing a vacant palatial residence, the very thing for the lammles, and wrote to the lammles about it and The lammels always went to look at it but unfortunately, it never exactly answered in short they suffered so many disappointments, that they began to think it would be necessary to build a palatial residence. And hereby they made another shining reputation, many persons of their acquaintance becoming by anticipation dissatisfied with their own houses, and envious of the non-existent lammal structure. The handsome fittings and furnishings of the house in Sackville Street were piled thick and high over the skeleton upstairs, and if it ever whispered from under its load of upholstery, here I am in the closet, it was to very few ears, and certainly never to Miss Podsnap's. What Miss Podsnap was particularly charmed with, next to the graces of her friend, was the happiness of her friend's married life. This was frequently their theme of conversation.
1: "'I am sure,'
0: said Miss Podsnap,
1: "'Mr. Lammle is like a lover. At least, I, I should think he was.'
0: "'Georgiana, darling!' said Mrs Lammle, holding up a forefinger, take care. Oh, my goodness me! exclaimed Miss Podsnap reddening. What have I said now? Alfred, you know, hinted Mrs Lammle, playfully shaking her head. You were never to say Mr Lammle any more, Georgiana. Oh,
1: Alfred, then. I'm glad it's no worse. I was afraid I had said something shocking. I am always saying something wrong to ma.
0: "'To me, Georgiana, dearest?'
1: "'No, not to you. You are not ma. I wish you were.'
0: Mrs. Lammle bestowed a sweet and loving smile upon her friend, which Miss Podsnap returned, as best she could. They sat at lunch in Mrs. Lammle's own boudoir. "'And so, dearest Georgiana, Alfred is like your notion of a lover?'
1: "'I don't say that, Sophronia.'
0: "'Georgiana replied, beginning to conceal her elbows. "'I haven't
1: any notion of a lover. "'The dreadful wretches that Ma brings up at places to torment me "'are not lovers. "'I only mean that
0: that Mr—' "'Again, dearest Georgiana.'
1: "'That Alfred—'
0: "'Sounds much better, darling.
1: "'Loves you so. "'He
0: always treats you with such delicate gallantry and attention. "'Now, don't he?' "'Truly, my dear—' said Mrs Lammle, with a rather singular expression crossing her face. I believe that he loves me fully as much as I love him. Oh, what happiness! exclaimed Miss Podsnap. But do you know, my Georgiana, Mrs Lammle resumed presently, that there is something suspicious in your enthusiastic sympathy with Alfred's tenderness?
1: Good gracious, no!
0: I hope not doesn't it rather suggest said mrs lammle archly that my georgiana's little heart is oh don't miss podsnap blushingly besought her
1: please don't i assure you sophronia that i only praise alfred because he is your husband and so fond of you
0: sophronia's glance was as if a rather new light broke in upon her it shaded off into a cool smile as she said with her eyes upon her lunch and her eyebrows raised "'You are quite wrong, my love, in your guess at my meaning. "'What I insinuated was that my Georgiana's little heart "'was growing conscious of a vacancy.' "'No, no, no!' said Georgiana.
1: "'I wouldn't have anybody say anything to me in that way, "'for I I don't know how many thousand
0: pounds.' "'In what way, my Georgiana?' inquired Mrs. Lammle, "'still smiling coolly with her eyes upon her lunch "'and her eyebrows raised.' "'You know,' returned poor little Miss Podsnap,
1: "'I think I should go out of my mind, Sophronia, "'with vexation and shyness and detestation, if anybody did. "'It's enough for me to see how loving you and your husband are. "'That's a different thing. "'I couldn't bear to have anything of that sort going on with myself. "'I should beg and pray to—to have the person taken away and trampled upon.'
0: "'Ah! here was Alfred.' Having stolen in unobserved, he playfully leaned on the back of Sophronia's chair, and, as Miss Potsnap saw him, put one of Sophronia's wandering locks to his lips, and waved a kiss from it towards Miss Potsnap. "'What is this about husbands and detestations?' inquired the captivating Alfred. "'Why, they say,' returned his wife, "'that listeners never hear any good of themselves, though you—' "'But, pray, how long have you been here, sir?' "'This instant arrived, my own. "'Then I may go on. "'Though, if you had been here but a moment or two sooner, "'you would have heard your praises sounded by Georgiana.'
1: "'Only if they were to be called praises at all, "'which I really don't think they were,'
0: "'explained Miss Podsnap in a flutter,
1: "'for being so d- devoted to Sophronia.'
0: "'Sophronia?' murmured Alfred, my life, and kissed her hand, in return for which she kissed his watch-chain. "'But it was not I who was to be taken away and trampled upon, I hope,' said Alfred, drawing a seat between them. "'Ask Georgiana, my soul,' replied his wife. Alfred touchingly appealed to Georgiana. "'Oh, it was nobody,' replied Miss Potsnap. "'It was nonsense.' "'But if you are determined to know, Mr. Inquisitive Pet, as I suppose you are,' said the happy and fond Sophronia, smiling, "'it was any one who should venture to aspire to Georgiana.' "'Sophronia, my love,' remonstrated Mr. Lammle, becoming graver. "'You are not serious.' "'Alfred, my love,' returned his wife. "'I dare say Georgiana was not, but I am.' Now this, said Mr. Lammle, shows the accidental combinations there are in things. Could you believe, my ownest, that I came in here with the name of an aspirant to our Georgiana on my lips? Of course I could believe it, Alfred, said Mrs. Lammle, anything that you told me. You dear one, and I anything that you told me how delightful those interchanges, and the looks accompanying them. Now, if the skeleton upstairs had taken that opportunity, for instance, of calling out, Here I am, suffocating in the closet. I give you my honour, my dear Sophronia, and I know what that is, love, said she, You do, my darling, that I came into the room all but uttering young Fledgeby's name. Tell Georgiana, dearest, about young Fledgeby.
1: Oh, no, don't! Please don't!
0: cried Miss Potsnap, putting her fingers in her ears. I'd rather not! Mrs. Lammle laughed in her gayest manner, and, removing her Georgiana's unresisting hands, and playfully holding them in her own at arm's length, sometimes near together, and sometimes wide apart, went on. You must know, you dearly beloved little goose, that once upon a time there was a certain person called young Fledgeby, and this young Fledgeby, who was of an excellent family and rich, was known to two other certain persons dearly attached to one another, and called Mr and Mrs Alfred Lammle. So this young Fledgeby, being one night at the play, there sees, with Mr. and Mrs. Alfred Lammle a certain heroine, called— No, don't say Georgiana Potsnap, pleaded that young lady, almost in tears.
1: Please don't. Oh, do, 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 say somebody else. Not Georgiana Potsnap. Oh, don't, don't,
0: don't. No other, said Mrs. Lammle, laughing airily, and full of affectionate blandishments, opening and closing Georgiana's arms like a pair of compasses. "'than my little Georgiana Podsnap, "'So this young Fledgeby goes to that Alfred Lammle and says, "'Oh, please don't!' "'Georgiana, as if the supplication were being squeezed out of her by powerful compression, "'I so hate him for saying it!' "'For saying what, my dear?' <laughs> laughed Mrs. Lammle. "'Oh, I don't know what he said,' cried Georgiana wildly. "'But I hate him, all the same, for saying it.' "'My dear,' said Mrs. Lammle, always laughing in her most captivating way, "'the poor fellow only says that he is stricken all of a heap.' "'Oh, what shall I ever do?' interposed Georgiana. "'Oh,
1: my goodness! What a fool he
0: must be!' "'And implores, to be asked to dinner, and to make a fourth at the play another time. "'And so he dines to-morrow, and goes to the opera with us. That's all.' except my dear georgiana and what will you think of this that he infinitely shyer than you and far more afraid of you than you ever were of any one in all your days in perturbation of mind miss podsnap still fumed and plucked at her hands a little but could not help laughing at the notion of anybody's being afraid of her with that advantage Sophronia flattered her, and rallied her more successfully, and then the insinuating Alfred flattered her, and rallied her, and promised that at any moment, when she might require that service at his hands, he would take young Fledgeby out, and trample on him. Thus it remained amicably understood, that young Fledgeby was to come to admire, and that Georgiana was to come to be admired. And Georgiana, with the entirely new sensation in her breast, of having that prospect before her, and with many kisses from her dear Sophronia in present possession, preceded six feet one of discontented footmen, an amount of the article that always came for her when she walked home, to her father's dwelling. The happy pair being left together, Mrs. Lammle said to her husband, "'If I understand this girl, sir, your dangerous fascinations have produced some effect upon her. I mention the conquest in good time, because I apprehend your scheme to be more important to you than your vanity.' There was a mirror on the wall before them, and her eyes just caught him smirking in it. She gave the reflected image a look of the deepest disdain, and the image received it in the glass. Next moment they quietly eyed each other, as if they, the principals, had had no part in that expressive transaction. It may have been that Mrs. Lammle tried in some manner to excuse her conduct to herself, by depreciating the poor little victim of whom she spoke with acrimonious contempt. It may have been, too, that in this she did not quite succeed, for it is very difficult to resist confidence, and she knew she had Georgianas. Nothing more was said between the happy pair. Perhaps conspirators who have once established an understanding may not be over-fond of repeating the terms and objects of their conspiracy. Next day came, came Georgiana, and came Fledgeby. Georgiana had by this time seen a good deal of the house and its frequenters as there was a certain handsome room with a billiard-table in it, on the ground floor, eating out a back-yard, which might have been Mr. Lammle's office or library, but was called by neither name, but simply Mr. Lammle's room. So it would have been hard for stronger female heads than Georgiana's to determine whether its frequenters were men of pleasure, or men of business. Between the room and the men there were strong points of general resemblance. Both were too gaudy too slangy, too odorous of cigars, and too much given to horse-flesh, the latter characteristic being exemplified in the room by its decorations, and in the men by their conversation. High-stepping horses seemed necessary to all Mr. Lammle's friends, as necessary as their transaction of business to gather in a gypsy way at untimely hours of the morning and evening, and in rushes and snatches. There were friends who seemed to be always coming and going across the Channel— on errands about the boss, and Greek, and Spanish, and India, and Mexican, and pa and premium, and discount, and three-quarters, and seven-eighths. There were other friends, who seemed to be always lolling and lounging, in and out of the city, on questions of the boss, and Greek, and Spanish, and India, and Mexican, and pa and premium, and discount, and three-quarters, and seven-eighths. They were all feverish, boastful, and indefinably loose, and they all ate and drank a great deal, and made bets in eating and drinking. They all spoke of sums of money, and only mentioned the sums, and left the money to be understood as five-and-forty-thousand, Tom, or two-hundred-and-twenty-two, on every individual share in the lot, Joe. They seemed to divide the world into two classes of people—people who were making enormous fortunes, and people who were being enormously ruined. They were always in a hurry, and yet seemed to have nothing tangible to do, except a few of them these, mostly asthmatic and thick-lipped, who were for ever demonstrating to the rest, with gold pencil-cases which they could hardly hold because of the big rings on their forefingers, how money was to be made. Lastly, they all swore at their grooms, and the grooms were not quite as respectful or complete as other men's grooms, seeming somehow to fall short of the groom-point, as their masters fell short of the gentleman-point. Young Fedgebury was none of these. Young Fedgeby had a peachy cheek, or a cheek compounded of the peach, and the red, red, red wall on which it grows, and was an awkward, sandy-haired, small-eyed youth, exceeding slim—his enemies would have said, lanky—and prone to self-examination in the articles of whisker and moustache. While feeling for the whisker that he anxiously expected, Fedgeby underwent remarkable fluctuations of spirits, ranging along the whole scale, from confidence to despair. There were times when he started, as exclaiming, By Jupiter, here it is at last! There were other times when, being equally depressed, he would be seen to shake his head and give up hope. To see him at those periods leaning on a chimney-piece, like as on an urn containing the ashes of his ambition, with a cheek that would not sprout upon the hand on which that cheek had forced conviction, was a distressing sight. Not so was Fledgeby seen on this occasion. Arrayed in superb raiment, with his opera-hat under his arm, he concluded his self-examination hopefully, awaiting the arrival of Miss Podsnap, and talked small-talk with Mrs Lammle. In facetious homage to the smallness of his talk, and the jerky nature of his manners, Fledgeby's familiars had agreed to confer upon him, behind his back, the honorary title of Fascination Fledgeby. Warm weather, Mrs Lammle, said Fascination Fledgeby. Mrs Lammle thought it scarcely as warm as it had been yesterday. Perhaps not, said Fascination Fledgeby with great quickness of repartee, but I expect it will be devilish warm tomorrow. He threw off another little scintillation. Been out today, Mrs Lammle? Mrs Lammle answered, For a short drive. Some people said fascination, Fledgeby, are accustomed to take long drives, but it generally appears to me that if they make em too long, they overdo it. Being in such feather, he might have surpassed himself in his next sally, had not Miss Podsnap been announced. Mrs. Lammle flew to embrace her darling little Georgie, and when the first transports were over, presented Mr Fledgeby. Mr Lammle came on the scene last, for he was always late, and so were the frequenters always late all hands being bound to be made late, by private information about the bourse, and Greek, and Spanish, and India, and Mexican, and par, and premium, and discount, and three-quarters and seven-eighths. A handsome little dinner was served immediately, and Mr. Lammle sat sparkling at his end of the table, with his servant behind his chair, and his ever-lingering doubts about the subject of his wages behind himself. Mr. Lammle's utmost powers of sparkling were in requisition to-day. For Fascination Fledgeby and Georgiana not only struck each other speechless, but struck each other into astonishing attitudes. Georgiana, as she sat facing Fledgeby, making such efforts to conceal her elbows as were totally incompatible with the use of a knife and fork; and Fledgeby, as he sat facing Georgiana, avoiding her countenance by every possible device, and betraying the discomposure of his mind in feeling for his whiskers with his spoon, his wine-glass, and his bread. So Mr and Mrs Alfred Lammle had to prompt, and this is how they prompted. Georgiana, said Mr Lammle, low and smiling and sparkling all over like a harlequin, you are not in your usual spirits. Why are you not in your usual spirits, Georgiana? Georgiana faltered that she was much the same as she was in general. She was not aware of being different. Not aware of being different, retorted Mr Alfred Lammle. "'You, my dear Georgiana, who are always so natural and unconstrained with us, who are such a relief from the crowd that are all alike, who are the embodiment of gentleness, simplicity, and reality—' Miss Podsnap looked at the door, as if she entertained confused thoughts of taking refuge from these compliments in flight. "'Now, I will be judged,' said Mr. Lammle, raising his voice a little, "'by my friend Fledgeby." Potsnap faintly ejaculated when Mrs. Lammle took the prompt book. I beg your pardon, Alfred, my dear, but I cannot part with Mr Fledgeby quite yet. You must wait for him a moment. Mr Fledgeby and I are engaged in a personal discussion. Fledgeby must have conducted it on his side with immense art, for no appearance of uttering one syllable had escaped him. A personal discussion, Sophronia, my love. What discussion? Fledgeby. I am jealous. What discussion, Fledgeby? Shall I tell him, Mr. Fledgeby? asked Mrs. Lammle. Trying to look as if he knew anything about it, Fascination replied, Yes, uh, tell him. We were discussing then, said Mrs. Lammle, if you must know, Alfred, whether Mr. Fledgeby was in his usual flow of spirits. Why, that is the very point, Sophronia, that Georgiana and I were discussing as to herself. What did Fledgeby say? Oh, a likely thing, sir, that I am going to tell you everything and be told nothing. What did Georgiana say? Georgiana said she was doing her usual justice to herself to-day, and I said she was not. Precisely, exclaimed Mrs Lammle, what I said to Mr Fledgeby. Still it wouldn't do. They would not look at one another. No, not even when the sparkling host proposed that the quartet should take an appropriately sparkling glass of wine. Georgiana looked from her wine glass at Mr Lammle, and at Mrs. Lammle, but mightn't, couldn't, shouldn't wouldn't look at Mr Fledgeby. Fascination looked from his wine glass at Mrs. Lammle, and at Mr Lammle, but mightn't couldn't, shouldn't wouldn't look at Georgiana. More prompting was necessary. Cupid must be brought up to the mark. the manager had put him down in the bill for the part, and he must play it, Sophronia, my dear said Mr. Lammle. I don't like the colour of your dress, I appeal, said Mrs. Lammle, to Mr. Fledgeby, and I said, Mr. Lammle, to Georgiana, Georgie, my love, remarked Mrs. lammle, aside to her dear girl. I rely upon you not to go over to the opposition now, Mr. Fledgeby. Fascination wished to know if the colour were not called rose-colour. Yes, said Mr. Lammle, actually he knew everything. It was really rose-colour. Fascination took rose-colour to mean the colour of roses. In this he was very warmly supported by Mr. and Mrs. Lammle. Fascination had heard the term Queen of Flowers applied to the rose. Similarly, it might be said that the dress was the Queen of Dresses. Very happy Fledgeby from Mr. Lammle. Notwithstanding, Fascination's opinion was that we all had our eyes, or at least a large majority of us, and that and—and his father's opinion was several ands, with nothing beyond them. Oh, Mr. Fledgeby," said Mrs. Lammle, to desert me in that way— Oh, Mr Fledgeby, to abandon my poor dear injured rose and declare for blue. Victory, Victory, cried Mr Lammle, your dress is condemned, my dear. But what? said Mrs. Lammle, stealing her affectionate hand towards her dear girls, what does Georgie say? She says, replied Mr Lammle, interpreting for her, that in her eyes you look well in any colour, Sophronia, and that if she had expected to be embarrassed by so pretty a compliment as she has received, she would have worn another colour herself, though I tell her, in reply, that it would not have saved her for whatever colour she had worn would have been Fledgeby's colour. But what does Fledgeby say? He says, replied Mrs Lammle, interpreting for him, and patting the back of her dear girl's hand, as if it were Fledgeby who was patting it, that It was no compliment, but a little natural act of homage, that he couldn't resist. And, expressing more feeling, as if it were more feeling on the part of Fledgeby, he is right, he is right. Still, no, not even now would they look at one another seeming to gnash his sparkling teeth, studs, eyes, and buttons all at once, Mr. Lammle secretly bent a dark frown on the two, expressive of an intense desire to bring them together by knocking their heads together. Have you heard this opera of to-night, Fledgeby? he asked, stopping very short, to prevent himself from running on into Confound You. Why, no, not exactly, said Fledgeby. In fact, I don't know a note of it. Neither do you know it, Georgie," said Mrs. Lammle. N- "New," replied Georgiana faintly, under the sympathetic coincidence. "Why then?" said Mrs. Lammle, charmed by the discovery which flowed from the premises. "You neither of you know it." Oh, how charming! Even the craven Fledgeby felt that time was now come when he must strike a blow. He struck it by saying. Partly to Mrs. Lammle and partly to the circumambient air. I consider myself very fortunate in being reserved by As he stopped dead, Mr Lammle, making that gingerous bush of his whiskers to look out of, offered him the word and destiny. No, I wasn't going to say that, said Fledgeby. I was going to say fate. I consider very fortunate that fate has written in the book of <laughs> in the book which is its own property, that I should go to that opera for the first time, under the memorable circumstances of, of going with Miss Pottsnap.' To which Georgiana replied, hooking her two little fingers in one another, and addressing the table-cloth,
1: "'Thank
0: you, but I generally go with no one but you, Saffronia, and I like that very much.' Content perforce with this success for the time, Mr Lammle let Miss Podsnap out of the room as if he were opening her cage door, and Mrs Lammle followed. Coffee being presently served upstairs, he kept a watch on Fledgeby until Miss Podsnap's cup was empty, and then directed him with his finger, as if that young gentleman were a slow retriever, to go and fetch it. This feat he performed, not only without failure, but even with the original embellishment of informing Miss Podsnap that green tea was considered bad for the nerves, though there Miss Potsnap unintentionally threw him out, by faltering, "'Oh! is it indeed?
1: How does it act?'
0: which he was not prepared to elucidate. The carriage announced, Mrs. Lammle said, "'Don't mind me, Mr. Fledgeby. My skirts and cloak occupy both my hands. Take Miss Potsnap.' And he took her, and Mrs. Lammle went next, and Mr. Lammle went last, savagely following his little flock, like a drover but he was all sparkle and glitter in the box at the opera and there he and his dear wife made a conversation between fledgeby and georgiana in the following ingenious and skilful manner they sat in this order mrs lammle fascination fledgeby georgiana mr lammle mrs lammle made leading remarks to fledgeby only requiring monosyllabic replies mr lammle did the like with georgiana at times mrs lammle would lean forward to address mr lammle to this purpose alfred my dear mr fledgeby very justly says apropos of the last scene that true constancy would not require any such stimulant as the stage deems necessary to which mr lammle would reply ay sophronia my love but as georgiana has observed to me the lady had no sufficient reason to know the state of the gentleman's affections to which Mrs. Lammle would rejoin, "'Very true, Alfred. But Mr. Fledgeby points out this,' to which Alfred would demur, "'Undoubtedly, Sophronia, but Georgiana acutely remarks that—' Through this device the two young people conversed at great length, and committed themselves to a variety of delicate sentiments, without having once opened their lips, save to say yes or no, and even that not to one another. Fledgeby took his leave of Miss Podstap at the carriage door, and the Lammels dropped her at her own home, and on the way Mrs Lammle archly rallied her in her fond and protective manner by saying at intervals Oh little Georgiana, little Georgiana Which was not much, but the tone added You have enslaved your Fledgeby. And thus the Lammels got home at last. And the lady sat down, moody and weary, looking at her dark lord engaged in a deed of violence with a bottle of soda- water as though he were wringing the neck of some unlucky creature and pouring its blood down his throat as he wiped his dripping whiskers in an ogreish way. He met her eyes and pausing, said, with no very gentle voice, "Well, was such an absolute booby necessary to the purpose? I know what I am doing. He is no such a dolt as you suppose." "'A genius, perhaps. "'You sneer, perhaps, and you take a lofty air upon yourself, perhaps. "'But I tell you this, when that young fellow's interest is concerned, "'he holds as tight as a horse-leech. "'When money is in question with that young fellow, "'he is a match for the devil. "'Is he a match for you? "'He is, or was as good a one as you thought me, for you. "'He has no quality of youth in him, but such as you have seen to-day.' Touch him upon money, and you touch no booby then. He really is a dolt, I suppose, in other things. But it answers his one purpose very well. Has she money in her own right, in any case?' "'Aye, she has money in her own right, in any case. You have done so well to-day, Sophronia, that I answer the question, though you know I object to any such questions. You have done so well to-day, Sophronia, that you must be tired.' get to bed. End of book two, chapter four.
1: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons.